Hello, my name is uh, WPS Sidhu, and I'm an associate professor at the Center for Global Affairs, New York University. Yes, and I'm uh, Professor Andy Knight from the University of Alberta, and that's in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And we're here to talk about uh, the future of multilateralism. And uh, so I want to do, I want to say a few words on that before I start. Uh, thank you so much for that, Andy. And and I thought, you know, this was a good opportunity to have this discussion, given that the UN has just celebrated its 75th anniversary. We had a big event on yeah. the uh, 21st of September. So how do you see the future of multilateralism evolving? Well, I, you know, as an academic, we try to, to, to think of this in terms of a theoretical way, way to sort of approach this. Um, first of all, I think we, we have to look at multilateralism as something that's evolving. I like the way you put it, rather than something that's static. Mm -hmm. and what's happening, I think, what, what we're seeing is um, a kind of an intersection of state-based organizations, which normally make up the traditional multilateral forum, yeah. and non-state actors. Uh, James Rosnow uses the terms um, sovereignty-free and sovereignty-bound, sovereignty-bound mm -hmm. Are nation are the actors that um, adhere to the notions of sovereignty, whereas the sovereignty-free actors are non-state actors and and multinational national corporations, environmental groups, uh, human rights groups, and so on. Right. Uh, do not necessarily uh, adhere to the, uh, the, the the positions of of the of the sovereign state, um, but they they're definitely interacting, and we can see this happening, especially with the COVID nineteen. Um, pandemic, right. where you know scientists are being involved in discussions at the World Health Organization, right. or where non-state actors are being involved in making proposals for a new vaccine that's coming up. Right. Um, so I think this is a new normal uh, as far as the expansion of this multilateral concept is concerned. Absolutely, and and I think if you you know if I look at it in the two areas that uh, or, or the area that I focus on, which is uh, largely that of arms control and disarmament, uh, two of the recent treaties, the Arms Trade Treaty and the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, was very much led by uh, NGOs. In fact, one of them won the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, ICANN, uh, the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons, precisely because they were able to garner states to come together. Uh, on this uh, on this particular uh, issue but clearly those negotiations are not going to be much easier you know they're still going to be much more complicated because uh, all all ngos are not of the same hue uh, you know, where, where you have people, uh, for example, groups like Médecins Sans Frontières, you may also have the National Rifle Association, for example. So that's only going to complicate in some ways the negotiation process. Would you agree? I agree. I think, you know, we're talking about a different kind of, of situation in which um, not all, as you say, not all non-state non actors are the same. Mm. Uh, they don't all have the same level of leg legitimacy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, who are these members of these non-state actors? Right. Uh, where do they get their authority from? Where do they get their legitimacy from? These are questions that we still have to raise. Right. At the same time, we have to acknowledge that they are playing a role at the, at the multilateral level and that they're intersecting with the nation state, sometimes acting at cross purposes right. with the states, but sometimes acting in collaboration with right. states right. and supporting what states want to do. Right. Indeed. And this is, in fact, the new reality, whether we like it or not. And uh, I think uh, we were discussing the UN also has very grudgingly seemed to have accepted this now, uh, 
Uh, yeah. Even though we know that the charter does actually make provisions for that kind of a possibility. And we've mm-hmm. seen this, uh, you know, being a, another term which is being used, multi-stakeholderism, is perhaps right. the other way that, that it's being approached. But increasingly, we see the UN being uh, allowing for space and really tra- starting to serve as an arena for uh, this kind of multilateralism uh, that, that that you've mentioned. And I think, yeah. frankly, that is the way forward, because if the UN does not do that, it will yeah. be rendered irrelevant. But that's a very, very good point that you raise. I think we, we, many of us are talking about change uh, within the international system, the, the importance of change. Yeah. There are different ways of looking at change. We can have reformist kind of change, which yeah. is basically holding on to the status quo as much as possible. And just simply oiling the machine and, and you know making adjustments and changes that do not amount to structural deep changes and then you can have this sort of uh, adaptive a kind of a, a reflexive adaptation to pressures coming to the organizations mm-hmm. from outside the organization or within the organization mm-hmm. and then and then we can have a more transformative type change that uh, is much more interested in things like relevance the relevance of the organization to the given time right a lot of We'll use the term now is the UN fit for purpose? Correct. That's the kind of relevance that we need to sort of bring to the discussion. Right. And I think what we're seeing is um, a movement towards that kind of more transformative type change. Yeah. By the way, the the the, the, um, uh, the founders of the United Nations sort of yeah yeah. I, I think we've got about fifteen seconds left, so I'm just okay. going to jump in and say. Uh, thanks for this. This was a great opportunity, but also that the UN 75 is certainly an opportunity to see the UN rising to that occasion. And we've heard that on the 21st of September and made that conversation continue. Yes, I, I think 